Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're concluding our three-part journey through the life of John G. Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides. So it took us about two months, but we are finally here at the three-part ender to the life of John G. Payton, and it took me a lot longer than I would have originally anticipated. And part of that is because the biography, like I mentioned before, is just very uh, detailed, very in-depth. Uh, the other part, if some of you guys have been following the show for a long time, you know that my family and I live in Cambodia, where we work as teachers at a very small mission school. And up until recently, we were online, and now our students are in person. This is the second week of that, and so our schedules have gotten a little bit more hectic. Uh, But all that being said, we are back this week with another episode, and I am excited. And I'm really excited to have a conclusion to the life of John G. Payton. And it is, I will say, so much more encouraging than the last episode. So if you left the last episode thinking, man, that is a real downer. Well, I am here to encourage you because this one has a lot of positivity. So after Peyton leaves Tana, he goes back to Australia and then eventually spends a couple years in Scotland and England where he's talking about his experiences. As I mentioned last episode, there were some people that were kind of nasty about him coming back. They thought that he had failed or why if the other people had been martyred, why wasn't he martyred? He would do so much more to advance the gospel and spread the awareness if he had been martyred, which doesn't make an awful lot of sense. I mean, it was already difficult enough getting people to come to the islands. Uh, But he was able to spend a few years there. And while he is there, he gets married to Margaret Whitecross. And they are happily married up until the last few years of Peyton's life. She dies a few years before he does. But this has a much happier ending than his first wife and child. In 1865, the happy couple lands in Sydney, and they go to look at the Dayspring, which is a very lovely boat that was granted and gifted by donations, and it is to be used by the missionaries who were kind of going from island to island. And if you recall in part two, one of the big issues for them is not having reliable transportation off of the island or even um, reliable shipments of things coming in. So the idea here was that it would stop that and kind of prevent the missionaries from being completely reliant on the British Navy. Now, one thing that's really amazing about this is up until this point, he is still determined to get back to Tana. What's even more incredible is his new wife is also okay with going back to Tana, even after hearing all the harrowing tales that I'm sure he told her in immense detail, because if there's one thing that Peyton was, it was very detailed. Now, when he arrives at Anetum, he also has a newborn son. They arrive in 1866, and he finds out that Abraham had died while he was away. And he writes this, While staying at Anetum, I learned with as deep emotion as man ever felt for man that noble old Abraham, the sharer of my Tanese trials, had during the interval peacefully fallen asleep in Jesus. He had left for me his silver watch, one which I myself had sent the dear soul from Sydney and which he greatly prized. In his dying hour, he said, Give it to Missy, my own Missy Payton, and tell him that I go to Jesus where time is dead. 
And not that this is in any comparison to the loss of Abraham, but he also finds out that his dog had since passed away as well. And his dog was with him for all the trials on the island and had actually protected him many times. So when he gets to the island, it's actually tinged with a lot of sadness. And while he's there on the island, a group of missionaries get together. They have a council that that meets every year. And they decided that the Paytons should not head to Tana, but should instead head to a nearby island called Anawa. And amazingly, while Peyton was away, all of the old mission stations on the different islands where the previous missionaries had been martyred were already reoccupied, and some fresh islands were entered upon, as he says, in the name of Jesus. As we moved about with our day spring and planted the missionaries here and there, nothing could repress the wonder of natives. How is this, they cried. We slew or drove away them all, that we plundered their houses and robbed them. Had we been so treated, nothing would have made us return. But they come back with a beautiful new ship, and now with more missionaries. And is it to trade or get money like the other white men? No, no, but to tell us about their Jehovah God and of his son Jesus. If their God makes them do all that, we may well worship him too. This was a real turning point in the New Hebrides. And while they were taking the day spring around, dropping missionaries off at various places, bad weather forced them to stop in Tana. And while they were there, one of the chiefs from the island, who comes up a lot, in the previous episode, was determined to keep the Montana and was genuinely grieved when they told him they couldn't stay. And he promised to protect them and keep them safe, but despite how genuine he may have been in the moment, as we know, things can change, promises can change, it was still agreed by the missionary council on the main island that the Paytons go to Anawa. But all the same, even though they could not go to Tana, something beautiful happened all the same. And before we go on, there is a title that in the book, uh, Peyton uses a lot, or is it's used in reference to him, and it's the word Missy, which is M-I-S-S-I, and I believe that's how it's pronounced, but it seems to be a shortening of the word missionary, so I believe it's pronounced Missy. It could be something else, so if you happen to know, you can send me an email or a message on social media and let me know, because I am curious. I can't seem to find a pronunciation for it. But this is what Peyton writes about the outcome of his meeting with Noir. There was at that time an Anawan chief on Tana visiting friends. He was one of their great sacred men. He and his people had been promised a passage home in the day spring with their canoes in tow. When old Noir heard that he could not keep us to himself, he went to this Anawan chief and took the white shells, the insignia of chieftainship, from his own arm and bound them on the sacred man, saying, By these you promise to protect my missy and his wife and child on Anawa. Let no evil befall them or by this pledge, I and my people will revenge it. When the Paytons first arrive on the island, they are looking at plots of land to build the mission house. And there are two really good sites. Actually, one of them they loved a lot because you could see Tana from it. It was a beautiful, beautiful plot of land. But they refused access to build on it, even though they offered to pay quite a bit for it. Instead, they were offered another site, which seemed okay. I mean, it wasn't great. But in God's providence, it was the perfect place for them. Now, they had no idea why they had been refused to buy the beautiful land, but they were grateful all the same for this other land. But as they were leveling it out, preparing the foundation and things like that, Peyton found a lot of human bones. In fact, he collected two huge baskets of human bones. And when he asked how many bones had come to be there, one of the chiefs replied nonchalantly, We are not like the Tananese men. We do not eat the bones. Which is not really what you want to hear, is that the place where you're building your house is an old cannibal dumping site. 
And it's here that Peyton gets incredibly specific. He goes into how they built the mission house, how many feet it was, what it looked like, the foundation, all this stuff. It is very intense. Uh, but one part that kind of cracked me up is he goes into detail about building these French doors and how they open up onto the veranda and all these things. And all I could think about while reading it is that he is the missionary version of Joanna Gaines. I've never heard somebody talk so much about French doors. When they finished building the mission house, they also built uh, two small orphanages, one for girls and one for boys. And you know the old saying, if you build it, they will come. And many orphans did come to the school. And Peyton says, we trained these young people for Jesus. And at this day, many of our best native teachers and most devoted Christian helpers are among those who would probably have perished but for the orphanages. And while they were working on the house and things like that, he needed to learn Anawin, which is completely different from Tanese, even though they're all on the same island chain. Uh, there wasn't a lot of crossover in language. But Peyton does have a bit of wisdom in this, and he says, if you want to learn a language, the easiest way to do it is simply to say, what is this, in whatever language you are attempting to learn, and then just have somebody tell you what that thing is that you are pointing at, and have a notebook handy, and write it down phonetically so that you can remember it, and as time goes on, you will gather more and more of your vocabulary, and soon, you'll be proficient in another language. One day, while he was out working on the house, he needed some supplies from Mrs. Peyton. So he wrote down what he needed on a piece of wood, and he asked one of the Anawan men to go give it to Mrs. Peyton. And he was really weirded out by it. He didn't want to go, and he was kind of getting angry as, why do you want me to bring this piece of wood to your wife? This is really weird. But he says, by hard pleading, I succeeded in persuading him to go. He was amazed to see her looking at the wood and then fetching the needed articles. He brought back the piece of wood and eagerly made signs for an explanation. Chiefly in broken Tanese, I read to him the words and informed him that in the same way God spoke to us through his book. The will of God was written there, and by and by, when he had learned to read, he would hear God speaking to him from its page, as Mrs. Peyton had heard me from the bit of wood. A great desire was thus awakened in the poor man's soul to see the very word of God printed in his own language. He helped me to learn words and master ideas with growing enthusiasm. And when my work of translating portions of the Holy Scripture began, his delight was unbounded and his help invaluable. The miracle of a speaking page was not less wonderful than that of speaking wood. You'll recall I said when they first arrived that they were denied buying a seemingly perfect plot of land, and instead they were given one that was used as a burial site for cannibalized remains. And they didn't know why they had been forced to this spot until many years later, when one of the chiefs became a Christian and related the story to an Anawan assembly. This is what the old chief said. When Missy came, we saw his boxes. We knew that he had blankets and calico, axes and knives, fish hooks and all such things. We said, don't drive him off, else we will lose all these things. We will let him land, but we will force him to live on the sacred plot. Our gods will kill him, and we will divide all the things he has amongst the men of Anawa. But Missy built his house on our most sacred plot. He and his people lived there, and the gods did not strike. He planted bananas there, and we said, Now when they eat of these, they will drop dead, as our fathers assured us, if anyone ate fruit from that ground except only our sacred men themselves. These bananas ripened, and they did eat them. We kept watching for days and days, but no one died. Thereafter, what we say and what our fathers have said is not true. Our gods cannot kill them. 
their Jehovah God is stronger than the gods of Anawa. So you can see in that, they're very sneaky and they're very patient. And another way in which they're patient is their thirst for revenge, which was fairly well known among the islands. And in fact, they had one grudge that had been unsettled for about 80 years. All those years before, peaceful Anawans had gone to Anetum, back when Anetum was still an island of cannibals. And they were attacked there and eaten. Only one man survived and he came back to Anawa to tell what had happened. The people were so enraged, rightfully so, that they took and they dug a deep gouge into the earth. And they said, this gouge will never be filled until we have our revenge on the Anetans. And that revenge took 80 years. Now, fast forwarding to the current timeline, the Anetans were all Christians, and they were interested in sending missionaries to the various islands. So two missionaries decided to come to the island of Anawa. And everything was going really well. It was, it was fine. Everything was uh, seemingly peachy. But then they realized that these were men from Anetum. And they had promised to protect them already, so they realized they themselves could not kill them. So instead, they hired men of Tana. And these men of Tana ambushed them and tried to shoot them, but the gun didn't uh, fire. So instead, they clubbed them to death. Now, one died instantly, and the other was deeply injured. And a chief that we will meet later, his name is Namake, he dragged the man away and said, Look, this is enough. You guys can stop it. There's no more need for revenge. Let this man go back to his people. So they listened to their chief, and the chief slowly nursed the man back to health and then sent him off to Anetum. And this all happened shortly before Peyton got there. And this old chief who had saved the Anetan's life actually became the first convert on Anawa. At this point, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound so bad. It sounds really pretty pleasant, honestly. I mean, especially compared with Tana, and that is true. But he still says that he had to be very careful because people would follow him around while he was doing things and would routinely try to ambush him or try to kill him. So oftentimes his only recourse to stop them from killing him was to run up and give them a gigantic hug and hold on to them so they couldn't shoot him or hurt him until finally they got so frustrated that they just left, which sounds really strange. And it is a really strange like mental picture, but it worked and these people never actually shot at him, but this is something he went through on a fairly regular basis as he was just going around living his life. And during this time, the orphanage began to grow as many different parents began to entrust their children to the missionaries to raise and care for. And one of the first children that came to the orphanage was actually the chief Namakai's daughter, um, his only daughter. Her name was Litsi the Great, and she actually has a really cool story that we did not get into on this episode in this podcast because there simply isn't time. But that's why I always encourage you to read the stories for yourselves. Soon they had a whole school of little children. So they had a school and an orphanage running. And these children became known as little birds because they would always warn Peyton and the other missionaries about dastardly plots that were being formed against them. And the men would wonder, how on earth did you know? And he would say, I have these little birds that tell me. And I guess they never put two and two together that the little birds were the children, 
but the children saved their lives many, many times. He tells a really interesting story here about the kind of the worldview, honestly, of the Anowans and how their creation story goes. And it's really fascinating. So I want to put it in here as well. He says this. One morning at daylight, this tuba came running up to us in great excitement, wielding his club and furiously crying, Missy, I have killed the treble. I have killed the tipolo. He came to catch me last night. I raised all the people and we fought him round the house with our clubs. At daybreak, he came out and I killed him dead. We will have no more bad, bad conduct or trouble now. Tipolo is dead. And I said, what nonsense. Tipolo is a spirit and cannot be seen. But in mad excitement, he persisted that he had killed him. And at Mrs. Peyton's advice, I went with the man and he led me to a great sacred rock of coral near our old hut, over which hung the dead body of a huge and beautiful sea serpent and exclaimed, there he lies. Truly, I killed him. I protested, that is not the devil, it is only the body of a serpent. But the man quickly answered, Well, but it is all a game, he is Tipolo, he makes us bad and causes all our troubles. Following this up with many inquiries and hints, and then afterwards I found out that they clearly associated man's troubles and suffering somehow with the serpent. They worshipped the serpent as a spirit of evil, under the name Meshiktishiki, that is to say, they lived in abject terror of his influence, and all their worship was directed at propitiating this rage against man. It's really fascinating. He tells a few other uh, stories about their worldview as well, but this is the one that I find most fascinating. There were two major problems on the island, and that was the problem of infanticide and the problem of wife murder. He says that one man buried his newborn baby alive, and another, angry at his wife, snatched their baby away hid in the bush, and returned the next morning with no baby. Another, a woman, threw her perfectly healthy baby into the sea. But they each in turn became Christians and adopted orphans from the orphanages to care for and love. And then one happy young couple was perfect in every way, only they had no children. One day, the husband brought home a widow with two children, and the young wife was very much opposed to this idea, and instead of reasoning with her, the husband shot her. Then a few weeks after her death, he moves his new wife and two children to live with him, and nobody cared, nobody even blinked an eye. Well, the new wife begins bringing her children to church, and her husband soon followed, and they both became Christians and were raising their now large family in the faith. And Peyton has a quote here I would like to share. It would give a wonderful shock, I suppose, to many namby-pamby Christians to whom the title Mighty to Save conveys no ideas of reality to be told that nine or ten converted murderers were partaking with them in the holy communion of Jesus. But the Lord who reads the heart and weighs every motive and circumstance has perhaps much more reason to be shocked by the presence of some of themselves. Penitence opens all the heart of God. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It's just incredible. I love that quote and I love those stories. I don't like the, you know, the first part of those stories. That's very tragic. But the redemption in Christ is something that is incredibly beautiful. Anoa was an island that was very small and it had basically no hills or mountains to speak of. It was very flat. And so not a lot of rain came through. And even the base and soil of the island was pretty much just coral. And so there was really not a lot of fresh water, if any fresh water, on Anawa. So the Anawans had dirty water to drink most of the time, but pretty much they lived on coconuts and sugarcane. 
because they had no fresh water unless it rained. And the missionaries were really struggling with no fresh water. They couldn't tough it out like the Anawins could. And so Peyton began to pray to God that he would show him a good spot to dig a well. And so as he prayed, he decided to try for a well near one of the paths near the mission house. And so as he began to dig, Chief Namakai pleaded with him to tough it out until the rains came. But still he dug. And he has to look like a madman, like a complete, just absolutely lost his mind crazy. Because if you're an Anawin, you have no concept of a well. You think the only rain comes from the sky and you would be completely, that's a completely logical uh, train of thought. But instead, you see this man who clearly seems to have lost his mind digging for water (laughs) in the ground. So the old chief assigned people to watch him lest he try to kill himself. So he was watched 24-7 by very concerned Anowins. And as he gets down to about 30 feet, they are all convinced that he will be dropped into the sea and eaten by sharks and ruin will come upon them all. But lo and behold, water begins to boil and then rapidly spring up from the hole And this is the other thing, kind of the test of this well was, will what comes forward be salt water or will it be fresh water? And it was indeed fresh water, which is amazing. He brought it up for them to taste. They were amazed. It was just incredible. People were like, oh, can we we have this? Uh, We'll be able to drink from it all the time. If we drink from it, will it go away? And he's like, no, this will be here forever. And in fact, the more you take from it, the better it will taste. So like everybody from the island can come and get water from the well. And they were just absolutely amazed. Water came up from the ground. This is a miracle, basically. And Peyton says that another seven wells were attempted to be dug by the Anowins, but they either struck coral or salt water. So this was the only well on the island, and indeed it was a miracle well. Now, after all of this, the old chief, Namake, asks Peyton if he can preach the Sunday sermon at the church. And Peyton says that he can as long as he gathers all the people together. And Peyton says that Namake's sermon is what broke the back of heathenism on Anawa, and I will read it for you here. My people, the people of Anawa, the world is turned upside down since the word of Jehovah came to this land. Whoever expected to see rain coming up through the earth? It has always come from the clouds. Wonderful is the work of this Jehovah God. No God of Anawa ever answered the prayer as the Missy's God has done. Friends of Namake, all the powers of the world could not have forced us to believe that rain could have been given from the depths of the earth if we had not seen it with our own eyes, felt and tasted it as we do here. Now, by the help of Jehovah God, the Missy brought that invisible rain to view, which we never before saw, and beating his hand on his breast, he exclaimed, Something here in my heart tells me that the Jehovah God does exist the invisible one whom we've never heard nor saw till Missy brought him to our knowledge. The coral has been removed, the land has been cleared away, and lo, the water rises. Invisible till this day, yet all the same it was there, though our eyes were too weak. So I, your chief, do now firmly believe that when I die, when the bits of coral and the heaps of dust are removed, which now blind my old eyes, I shall then see the invisible Jehovah God with my soul, as Missy tells me. Not less surely than I have seen the rain from the earth below. From this day, my people, I must worship the God who has opened for us the well and who fills us with rain from below. The gods of Anawa cannot hear, cannot help us like the God of Missy. Henceforth, I am a follower of Jehovah God. Let every man that thinks with me go now and fetch the idols of Anawa, the gods which our fathers feared, and cast them down at Missy's feet. 
Let us burn and bury and destroy these things of wood and stone. And let us be taught by the Missy how to serve God who can hear, the Jehovah who gave us the well, and who will give us every other blessing. For he sent his son Jesus to die and to bring us to heaven. This is what the Missy has been telling us every day since he landed on Anawa. We laughed at him, but now we believe him. The Jehovah God has sent rain from the earth. Why should he not also send his son from heaven? Namake stands up for Jehovah. And from that day forward, a complete change came over the island. It was law and order. It was grace. It was peace. People no longer carried their every possession with them wherever they went. And when I say every possession, they would literally carry livestock, baby pigs. They would bring with them to church because they were afraid to leave them at home lest someone kidnap them. I guess pignap them would be the right word there. But anyway, they no longer did that. They left it at home. And if they came back and the pig was gone, then the law would deal with whoever stole the pig. And it really was just this beautiful thing. And he writes so intricately about it, all the little changes that took place on the island. Peyton's ministry on Anawa was a labor of love, and he was able to translate the New Testament, establish schools, orphanages, and churches. And you would think, honestly, that he lived to be about 120 years old with all of these experiences that he relates. But no, he actually died in Australia in 1907 at the age of 82, still publishing hymns and books for his beloved people. And today, 82% of the New Hebrides people, or Vanuatu as it is called today, are Christians. And that figure includes the island of Tana, where Peyton had planted the seeds all those years ago. Let's close with this story about the death of Namake. We followed him a lot in this episode, so it's only right that we bid him farewell alongside Peyton. Namake had heard that the missionaries were having their annual sign-on on the main island of Anetum, and he really wanted to go. But he was so near death that Peyton tried to dissuade him from going. Because what if he died over there and the people on Anawa thought something shady had happened? So here we will pick up in the autobiography. But he and his relations and his people were all set upon it. And I had at length to give way. His few booklets were then gathered together, his meager wardrobe was made up, and a small native basket carried all his belongings. He assembled his people and took an affectionate farewell, pleading with them to be strong for Jesus, whether they ever saw him again or not, and to be loyal and kind to Missy. The people wailed aloud, and many wept bitterly. Those on board the Dayspring were amazed to see how his people loved him. The old chief stood the voyage well. He went in and out to our meeting of Synod, and was vastly pleased with the respect paid to him on Anetum. When he had heard of the prosperity of the Lord's work and how island after island was learning to sing the praises of Jesus, his heart glowed and he said, Missy, I am lifting up my head like a tree. I am growing tall with joy. On the fourth or fifth day, however, he sent out for me at the synod. And when I came to him, he said eagerly, Missy, I am near to die. I have asked you to come and say farewell. Tell my daughter, my brother, and my people to go on pleasing Jesus and I will meet them again in the fair world. I try to encourage him, saying that God might raise him up again and restore him to his people. But he faintly whispered, Oh, Missy, death is already touching me. I feel my feet going away from under me. Help me to lie down under the shade of that banyan tree. And he laid down under its cool shade. He whispered again, I am going. Oh, Missy, let me hear your words raising up in prayer, and then my soul will be strong to go. Amidst many choking sobs, I tried to pray. 
At last he took my hand, pressed it to his heart, and said in a stronger and clearer tone, Oh, my Missy, my dear Missy, I go before you, but I know I will meet you again in the home of Jesus. Farewell. That was the last effort of dissolving strength. He immediately became unconscious and fell asleep. My heart felt like to break over him. He was my first Anawan convert, the first who ever on that island of love and tears opened his eyes to Jesus. And as he lay there on the leaves and grass, my heart soared upward after his, and all the harps of God seemed to thrill with song as Jesus presented to the Father this trophy of redeeming love. He had been our true and devoted friend and fellow helper in the gospel, and next morning all the members of our synod followed his remains to the grave. There we stood, the white missionaries of the cross from far distant lands, mingling our tears with Christian natives of Anedim, and letting them fall over one who only a few years before was a blood-stained cannibal, and whom now we mourned as a brother, a saint, an apostle among his people. You ask for an explanation. The Christ entered into his heart, and Namake became a new creature. Behold, I make all things new. This is the first missionary story we've covered where I am legitimately excited to meet not just the missionary, but every other Christian in the story too. All of them are so cool and so faithful and just so inspiring. And you can really see how much he cared about the specific people he ministered to. And while this three-part series was a real bear to put together, and I thank you guys for being so patient, I am also glad that I got to hear about all these amazing saints, and if you read his book, you will be too. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.